Today, we are going to be continuing on in our journey through the New Testament. We're in Matthew chapter 14, um, and uh, this is a relatively kind of low-key section of Scripture. There's some really interesting lessons to be found in here. Um, uh, I had a lot of fun studying it. There's, there's one of the benefits of being able to dive into deep materials. You can learn some pretty cool stuff. Most of it is typically useless, but uh, there's a lot of wonderful history and archaeology that just, you know, makes the geek in me smile. <clears throat> Today we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 23, and uh, there are three basic lessons that I want to bring to you today. Uh, the first one is silence is good. Every parent can understand that. Actually, sometimes if, depending on where you are in parenting, silence is bad, right? Depending on how young those kids are. The second one is you don't need all the answers. And the third one, there is no reason to fear the storm. Three lessons we're going to learn in this, in this section of Scripture. So I'm just going to jump right in. Um, starting in verse 22 in Matthew 14, it reads like this. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So remember in the last section, Jesus had, had finished up some ministry and he had decided he needed to get away and kind of be by himself. So he had this intent of leaving the Nazareth region, going down to the Sea of Galilee and trying to find some place to be alone and people had other plans. So they ended up, thousands of people ended up following him. They all got there. No one brought a lunch. So he taught them, he healed them, and then he fed the 5,000. That's where we left off. And so this, immediately after that, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go because his whole intention was to be alone. <laughs> that was the idea. But you, I want to kind of put a picture in your head of kind of where things are at the time. He had just walked up the coast from the, uh, walked to the coast from the Nazareth, Nazareth region. That's about 15 miles, Okay. Now, I'm fine taking a good walk, but walking from here to Watertown and a little farther, not really something I want to do, okay? I mean, there's some people who enjoy torturing themselves with 50-mile bike rides for no, no real reason whatsoever. Uh, I'm fine with that as long as the bike has a motor, you know? But 15-mile 15 15 mile, uh, uh, hike is not something I'm really interested uh, in, in doing myself. So, but you got to think, thousands of people followed him down to the sea. Chances are he got to the sea somewhere around the Tiberias area, and that's where he got in the boat, and then he started heading up the coast. Jesus had just finished healing people, feeding the thousands, and now it was time for the people to head home. So Jesus sends his disciples Ahead of him, he says, go, I'll catch up, okay? There are a few thoughts on this. This seems like one of those, like, you know, like flyover passages. You just kind of read it to get to the, to the other good part. But you think about what's happening at this point. Jesus sends his disciples on, and then he dismisses the crowds. That seems a little odd, but one of the things that we don't get in this particular passage is that Matthew doesn't cover all of the details of what was happening at that point. So one of the cool things about the Gospels is you have these sections that are found in more than one of the accounts. So what you do is you go and you look at the other accounts, try to figure out what details the other disciples or the other authors put in there. And one of the things that we find is that people were, trying, people were so impressed with what Jesus was doing right there, they wanted to lift him up as the political leader for the nation of Israel right there. 
In John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain to be by himself alone. So he knew he had just, he had, he had just like made food out of thin air. And I don't know about you, but that's going to get my attention. He had miraculously healed everyone that was brought before him. Now, I don't know about you, but that would get my attention. And the people of Israel at this time were desperately waiting for the promised Messiah. Anyone who even remotely looked like the Messiah, they would, they would, start, to try, they would start to follow. They would start putting this person up on a pedestal. And there was no doubt in anyone's mind that this Jesus guy fit the bill. He had the goods. He was, he was the one everyone was looking at. He heals people. He, he pulls food out of, you know, out of thin air. And they ended up with more leftover food than they started with. I mean, that's, that's a good trick. Every restaurateur in the world would love to know how he did that. But that wasn't what Jesus had come to do. This was not his time yet. You hear Jesus say this periodically throughout the Gospels. My, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And more importantly, and we so need to get this wrapped around our head, because this is really hard for especially, I think, American Christians to wrap their minds around. God is not interested in our political issues. He's just not interested this may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but Trump is not the second coming. It's hard to even think that he's truly a God-fearing man. He's on record saying, I don't know if I need forgiveness. I'd rather just live a life where I don't need to be forgiven for anything. Like, seriously, like, he's going to say that? Like, his, most of his life is on film. Trust me, he needs to repent. But God is not interested in our political structure. God is not interested in political office. Jesus was not here to start a social movement. Now, does that mean that Christians shouldn't pay attention to political issues and social issues? No, that's not what that means. Of course we should. We live in this world. We're part of this world. But our political structure should never be The church should never rule the government. Because if it does, at some point in time, the government will rule the church. We've got to keep that, those two things separate. Jesus was not interested in a political place. And, and the, the, the modern progressive church has one thing that they have forgotten. And that one thing that they have forgotten has led this church to such ridiculous theology that now they actually deny this thing would happen. And the thing that they deny would happen is that the cross was always the goal. Jesus knew this. The cross was always his goal. It wasn't just something that happened to him because he happened to tick off the wrong person at the wrong time. Jesus didn't go to the cross because the disciples were too cowardly to break him out of prison. Jesus went to the cross because that was always the goal. 
So when people would try to raise, raise him up to these political positions, he got out of there because he didn't want this. He didn't need to be declared an earthly king. He was already king. He was never not king. But he came to do something, and he needed to do it. So he got out of there. But he sent the disciples on. There are some commentators who believe he sent the disciples on, uh, along first because they were the ones who were starting it. Look at what this guy's doing. We've really got to make this guy our ruler. Oh, this guy would make such a good king, wouldn't it? You guys, get in the boat and go. Just go. I'm going to bust some tables and we'll let everybody else leave. So Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him and dispersed the crowd and headed up the mountain so that he could uh, to do what he originally wanted to do. He wanted to be alone. And this is that first part. Silence is good when you need it. How often do we do this intentionally? Intentionally get away to be in a quiet place. Now, I'm not talking about hiding from your kids in the closet with your phone. You know? It's not, it's not what I'm talking about. YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever, whatever dumb social, anti-social app that you happen to be attached to at this particular point in time, that's not what being alone is. You want to be alone? Here's something great to do. Reserve a little cabin up at Beaver Camp and go ahead. Well, Beaver Camp has Wi-Fi. Yep, but you get into those motel units, and Wi-Fi doesn't reach. You can be alone. You can be in quiet. And I'll tell you something. You get up in the morning before the sun does, you go down by that lake, you watch that sun come up, it does something to your soul. It just does. There's something about being just, just being and letting the world exist around you and just unplugging from it all that is just healing. It's good for your mind, it's good for your body, it's good for your soul. There's some, there's, if you're looking for peace in your life, there's a good way to start, Okay. You may have to pay someone to hold on to your kids for a little while, but that's okay. Sometimes we just got to do what we got to do. Jesus wanted to get alone. And being alone is not something that's going to happen accidentally. It happens on purpose. Every time we see Jesus going away to be by himself, he's doing it on purpose. It's intentional. Something wonderful that happens. One of the things I like to do is uh, uh, when it rains, just grab a cup of coffee and go out on our back porch because it's got a metal roof. Something about rain on a metal roof. It's just nice, you know. Unless the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, and then basically I'm getting a shower at the same time, and I'm not really interested in that. But there's just something about that sound. So let's, move, let's, let's keep moving on. Verse 24 starts like this. It says, But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves and the wind, uh, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. I love the way that says it. They were troubled. I would be losing my mind. Okay, losing my mind. It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. 
And Peter had uh, come down out, when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and uh, beginning to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got, uh, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The funny thing is, you know how many times at different points the disciples were like, oh, truly you're the son of God, but yet like they still didn't get it for so long. They just, just, just in and out. Of, it's like being, a, being half awake and half asleep. It's like you think you're there, but you're not. But this passage makes it seem like they were headed to the other side of the sea and got caught in a storm midway. This is a section that I titled, uh, You Don't Need All the Answers. Okay, so follow me here. The passage makes it look like they were headed to the other side of the sea and got caught in the storm. But honestly, that would be difficult to imagine. The people followed him from Nazareth, right? That's what we're told. That's here. They went this way. So the people followed him, thousands of people. He gets back in the boat, and chances are when he got to here, he went up to somewhere around Magdala. Well, no, Pastor, no, no, it says they crossed the sea. Well, yeah, have you ever been sailing? Crossing a body of water doesn't necessarily mean going from one side to completely the other side. Sometimes when you're sailing, in order to go right, you've got to go left first. And sometimes when you're just crossing a bay, you're still just crossing. You haven't crossed over to the other side, you just crossed. So sometimes we've got to follow what the evidence is telling us here. Now, during the time... Uh, during Jesus' time, to sail across the Sea of Galilee, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of eight miles, okay, not a terribly long distance to sail, but they were not in a modern sailboat. The ability for those boats from a sailing standpoint was about the capability of what we would call a sunfish today, those little tiny sailboats that everyone learns on that no one ever wants to ever ride in again the rest of their life when they move up to another boat because they're horrible. They had probably a square sail on a single mast, and it kind of tipped like this. That was about it. There was a reason that they were called rowing sailboats. Okay? These were men of the water, but it, would, it could take a long time to get from one side of that lake to the other. Now, today, you could sail it in about two hours in a good sailboat. Back then, it was most of the day. Most of the day to get completely across. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Now, to walk around the lake, well, that was a different story altogether. This was 38 miles around. So in order to walk halfway around the lake, you're talking seven to eight hours. Because it was not level ground. <laughs> Okay, These, this, was, this was like, you know, goat trail kind of thing. This was, this was stuff all over the place. So the idea that the, that the disciples, oh, wow, that didn't actually, uh, didn't actually work. I drew on this, and it was supposed to work up there. It didn't. Now I'm irritated. <laughs> See, I thought I was doing something so cool. I wasn't. Oh, well, it'll work. And imagine in your mind that red lines showed up above you. So they left, and Jesus was going to catch up with them later that night. So the idea that they were sailing completely to the other side of the lake 
doesn't really line up. Chances are they were going the other side of the bay, somewhere between Tiberias and Magdala to up towards Capernaum. We're told in the Gospel of John that they were headed toward Capernaum. So we're not talking completely across the lake. We're talking about up the lake. And chances are they had to go east before they could go west. So it wouldn't have been a straight line. That would have, they would have probably tacked around. It would have taken a little while. So that's, it's, it should be no, uh, uh, no surprise to anyone that they were away from the shore. But wherever they were, Jesus hadn't caught up to them yet. The idea that they would have been completely to the other side of the lake, you have to ask your question, how were they expecting Jesus to catch up that night? Fly? You know, grab a big seagull and, you know, head over the water? No, it would have been someplace where he could have walked and walked in a couple of hours. So chances are it's just straight up the coast. No matter how you look at it, the direction that they were coming from is irrelevant, isn't it? It means absolutely nothing to the story. The direction they were, where they were, where the mountain that Jesus was teaching on, where the feeding of the 5,000 took place, none of it is relevant to the story. Pastor, did you just waste five minutes talking about something that's completely irrelevant to the story? Yep. You want to know why? Because this is the stuff we fight over. This is the stuff that I hear Christians arguing over time and time and time again because we think we have to have all the answers to every question. I know exactly where they were. The scripture says that they went across the lake. So obviously, they were on the east side of the lake to when Jesus was originally teaching. And then later on that night, they went completely back to the other side of the lake. Takes about half a day to get across. We're supposed to believe all this happened in one day. That was a nice boat, whatever they used. It must have had like an Evinrude or something in there. It was a you know, nice little speedboat, apparently. But we get arguing over this stuff, and then we divide... You know, I, I, don't, I don't even want to talk to you about theology. You, you obviously can't read what's there. <laughs> Are you even a Christian? And I'm sitting in the back scratching my head thinking, does any of this matter? So here is a simple truth before we move on. You don't need all the answers. When it comes to your faith, when it comes to theology, when it comes to the things of Scripture, you do not have to know all the answers. You don't need to know all the Greek words. You don't need to know all the, all the uh, uh, early first century customs. You don't need to know what kind of boats they used on the sea. You don't need to know the names of all the fish they used to catch. You don't need to know what kind of lamb they used, how big they were, what they got fed, how they got great. You don't need to know this stuff. Because in reality, when someone is talking to you about your faith, there's nothing wrong with looking, them, looking at them square in the eye and saying, you know what, I really don't know that. But it's a good question. Maybe I'll go look it up. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no reason to argue about meaningless details. I mean, I can analyze the structure of the lake, get get an idea of roughly what kind of tide patterns there were there. You can actually go back from a weather standpoint and get an idea because the Sea of Galilee was known for specific types of storms coming down from specific directions. It would blow boats in certain ways. So you you could totally get an idea of exactly what was going on in the lake that night, and no one cares! All it does is it makes us feel smarter than we need to be at the moment. So when it comes to studying Scripture, when it comes to looking at the details of our faith, there are things you should know, but there are other things that really don't matter. If it was supposed to be in there, the Holy Spirit would have prompted the writers of Scripture to put it in there. 
If it's not in there, it probably doesn't matter, and that's okay. We need to be okay not knowing everything because in the end, it doesn't really matter. My TV just went off. Oh, no, it's my prompter. No, I'm kidding. I don't use a prompter. It's not. It's not. If I did, if I ever took my glasses off, I'd be done. <laughs> All right. Now, no matter which direction they were come from, coming from or which direction they were headed, no matter how you look at it, they were in a storm and they were in a lot of trouble. They were having a difficult time. So the scripture tells us that, they, uh, that Jesus came to them somewhere in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., Okay, now I want you to, to, to go back and think about what the, the passages that we just read. Jesus had dispersed them, and then he went up to the mountain to be by himself. By the time he got up on the mountain, it was finally nighttime, which was at this point in time, it was probably somewhere around 8 or 9 o'clock. They're out on the lake now, and they've been out on the lake all night trying not to die because they're stuck in the middle of a storm. So it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., Finally, Jesus starts walking up. Now, if you're out in the middle of a, of a lake in a, a sailboat that probably leaks, being tossed all around, being beaten up, and now all of a sudden you see this little shadowy figure walking out of the mist towards you, I understand why the disciples basically lost their minds. I get it. They're probably really tired, probably thinking we're going to die, and now they're probably thinking here comes one of our relatives to usher us into heaven because we're dead. At some point in time, Samantha and I were on our way back from Syracuse one night. When you start seeing stuff in the middle of the night for, for no reason, it can, it can weird you out in the, in, the, in the strangest ways. We're on our way back from Syracuse one night, and we're driving down 81, and it's kind of, it's kind of foggy, not terribly foggy, but, but foggy enough. And we're driving, and, and I'm, I'm just kind of cruising along, and I... Kind of, Samantha's like, what do you, Samantha doesn't see well at night. So I'm, I'm like, what, what, is, go, do you see that? She's looking, she's like, I think I see something, but I don't know what it is. And we're getting closer and closer. I'm not kidding. This gigantic demonic face starts to appear in front of us. It's not, it's not coming at us. It's just sort of appearing. We don't see any lights. We don't see nothing. All I'm seeing is the face of this sort of demony thing that's like, blah, just, just, just coming out of the darkness. And it's, it's not like just black, it's like foggy. So it's like coming out, and I'm thinking, what is about to happen? What is going on? And when we finally got there, I realized what was going on. <laughs> Some guy, probably a redneck, driving in a truck with no lights, <laughs> okay, He's got a couple lights in the front. None of the back lights work. And he's pulling a trailer, and there's no lights on the trailer. And he's hauling a giant gargoyle. <laughs> I had to pull over to change, okay? This is not good. I get it. I understand why they're like, what is happening? <laughs> we finally figured out what it was. We got, we got a pretty good laugh out of it, but I will never, ever, ever forget that night. That was just... 
And I'm sure he was up there with a can of Copenhagen thinking this was a good idea. <laughs> Scaring everyone behind me. It's just... Man. So nuts. But they're, they're walking across the lake. They're, you know, they're, they're up on the lake and Jesus is just, just, Jesus is just casually strolling across the water. Peter calls out to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, listen, listen to what he says. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Right? He didn't say, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. He said, Lord, if it's you, command me come to you. Some people say this is the idea that Peter may not have totally been convinced that, that, that of what he was seeing. You know, when you've been up all night trying not to die, trying not to drown, he may have been a little tired, a little, little foggy-eyed, that, that, no big deal there. So there's a possibility there. But it doesn't make any difference. He calls out, if it's really you, call me to come out in the water. Now, you think about what they had just witnessed from Jesus, all the miraculous that Jesus had just accomplished. Peter's saying, let's put this to the test. Let's, let's do something you know what? I want to be where you are. And Jesus says, all right, come on out. No problem. Peter steps out of the boat and walks towards Jesus. Stop and picture that in your mind for a second. The storm hadn't stopped yet. Remember, the wind didn't cease until Peter and Jesus got back into the boat. So everything that's happening next, up to Peter starting to sink back in the water, the storm is still going. Waves crashing into him, water spraying into him, wind, whole nine yards. All of that is still happening, and Peter steps out of the boat onto the water. He's walking on the water. I don't know what that looked like, but it would be cool to see. All of his friends are in the boat. They're just as terrified as he is. They're still trying to keep the boat afloat, and here comes Peter taking a step off the boat, what is going through their mind? I think my friend's about to drown. I'm not going in after him. He's heavy. Let him sink. Like a rock, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Bible joke. You'll get it, You'll get it in a few chapters. What happens when Peter gets out of the boat, I think, is a beautiful example of the tug-of-war between faith and doubt. And I, I, I don't think it, the doubt is what we think, it, what we've probably com- more commonly been told. Uh, I'm going to share with you my thoughts on it. You can take them or leave them. That's totally fine. But I think what's happening is, when I say fear, faith, and doubt, I, I, I see what's, what's physically happening in front of us versus what we are afraid could happen. I think that's the tug of war that we're seeing happening in Peter here. Faith, when people say Peter had a, had a, had a crisis of faith, he, Peter had a lack of faith, I don't know if that's true. Now, Jesus says, oh, you have a little faith. I'm going to explain what I, what, what I think is actually happening here. But he got out of the boat. If he had a lack of faith, he would have stayed in the boat. He got out of the boat. Here it come. He took the step. And everyone's watching. 
But I don't think the faith that got him out of the boat was his own faith in his ability to be on the water. I think what got him out of the boat was his faith in Christ's ability to keep him afloat. Do you understand the difference? There is a significant difference there. You can have all the faith in the world that Jesus saves that you're going to heaven and have zero faith that God will empower you to do what he's called you to do on earth. That doesn't mean you have a lack of faith just in general. It means you have a confidence problem and you have a a self-doubt issue. I think that's more along the lines of what we're doing here. Peter initially just got out of the boat and started walking to Jesus. Have you ever felt that God was calling you to do something ridiculous, even borderline crazy? There's chaos going on, going on all around you, and God is asking you to do something that everyone else would just call stupid. Could you imagine Jesus not being there, and Peter's there with, this, with, with all the guys. They're trying to keep the boat afloat, and he says, hey, guys, I think Jesus wants me to get out of the boat and walk to shore. Everyone's going, you're nuts. We'll watch from the boat. And then we'll tell your wife what happened to you later. Peter answered that call, and for a few minutes, it worked. For a few minutes, he had a degree of faith and understanding that very few of us will ever, will ever actually attain. The impossible became possible, and it became possible not because Peter had such great faith in himself and his ability and his, his, his understanding of the things of God that he was going to step on the water. It became possible because Jesus said it was possible. That's why it became possible. It wasn't because Peter was such a mighty man of God. The impossible became possible because Jesus said, come. Peter didn't say, let me come on the water. He said, command me to come to you. Agree with me that this is what you want me to do and I will do it. And Jesus said, come on out. Jesus made the impossible possible, which is what gave Peter the ability to stay above the water. It wasn't ever his ability. And he gets out there and he gets, he gets to Jesus. He's unaffected. I, I picture this thing in my mind where waves are breaking against his leg and he's standing there with Jesus. He's standing there seeing this amazing thing. And then something happens. We're not given a lot of detail of what happens, but I think the detail we're given is enough. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, uh, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. I think the key verse there is he was afraid. I've heard it said multiple times over the years. I'm sure if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard someone preach on this, that Peter's problem was that he took his eyes off of Jesus. Anyone ever heard that other than me? 
He, his eyes were fixed on Jesus, and that's what kept him afloat. And when he took his eyes off of Jesus, all of a sudden he began to sink. Now, let me ask you something. You ever tried to get out of a boat without looking? I won't even do that at a dock, because I've seen that happen. It's not that easy. Some, 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 uh, passage, some, some gospels will say he climbed out of the boat. This could have been a good-sized boat. There were 11 people on this boat. It wasn't a dinghy. So it's not like he was just staring and then just kind of... I don't think that's what happened. I don't think he jumped and cannonballed onto a, you know, a hard surface on the water. I think he had to climb down, put his foot down, and then turn around and walk towards Jesus. I don't think it had anything to do with where his eyes were. I think it had everything to do with where his heart was. There may be some truth to the idea of keeping your eye on Jesus, but I don't think that was the issue. I think more likely, Peter was so focused on what Jesus had asked him to do that nothing else mattered. He just went. He just just threw caution to the wind and just went. God is asking me to get out of the boat. I'm getting out of the boat. I don't care. I don't care what happens. I may drown right here. It's irrelevant. He's asked me to get out of the boat. I'm getting out of the boat. I think that's where his mind was. Jesus asked me to get out of the boat. That's all I needed to hear. I'm out of the boat. And I think he got to Jesus and he noticed something. He noticed everything around him was completely unnatural. Everything that was going on at that moment should not be happening. This is not something that should be happening. I think he got out and he started looking around and he started looking at the danger that was around him. And this is my person, this is what I said, this is my personal belief. Take it, leave it, doesn't, doesn't matter. I think he doubted that he should have been the one that was there. I think he doubted that he should have been the one that was there. I think he had thoughts in his mind like, what was I thinking? One of the other guys who are more faithful and who are better should be the ones out here. I shouldn't be the one that's out here. I don't have the ability to do this. I don't deserve this. Phrase it however you want. But somehow, to just say he just didn't have faith in Jesus, I think is kind of, uh, I'm going to use this carefully, naive. He got out of the boat. He walked on the water. He was standing in front of Jesus. What was the doubt that came into him? I think I'm going to drown. He's standing on the water. He's there. He's done it. In my mind, the doubt that crossed, that basically made it so he wasn't going to succeed anymore was the doubt from his perspective, not the doubt of God's perspective. I seriously doubt he was thinking, there's no way Jesus is keeping me afloat. I don't think he had that thought. I think his thought was, I shouldn't be here. I don't have what it takes to do this. And he's right. He didn't have what it takes to do this. He was not worthy to be there. That was an honor that he did not deserve. But God called him to it anyway. 
And I think there's an important lesson here for us. Whatever God is calling you to do, it is beyond your ability to handle by yourself. You are not worthy of it. You have not attained some sort of level where God owes you something. It's not something that, 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 that you're, just, you're just so privileged you have the honor to do this. There is nothing about you that makes you worthy for what God has got for you for the rest of your life. But that's not the point. Jesus has called you to it. And I think half the time we don't go there because we believe that God is calling us in a direction and we take a step and when we get out on the water, we realize that we are inadequate for the task at hand. We are not faithful enough for the honor that God has bestowed on us. We don't have what it takes to make this happen. God picked the wrong person and we sink. Because we think we're there for some other reason. Whatever it is that God is calling you to, it's not because he owes you or you're so amazing. You're there because he picked you. He picked you. Among all the people in the world, he picked you. Whether it makes sense to you or not is irrelevant. If it looks impossible to you, it's irrelevant. The impossible becomes possible because Jesus says it's possible. Not because, well, you know, I'm so glad God picked me. Whew. Man. You know, you guys should count your lucky stars that you didn't get some trained minister. <laughs> yeah. You know, who was refined, tall, had hair. I mean, there's... you. There's lots of things you could throw out there, you know, thin, you know, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> I'm a lot more of a man than I appear. My, trust me, my, my weight validates that every time I jump on a scale. There is nothing about me that makes me worthy of this position. Nothing. There is nothing about me that makes God owe me. I didn't put in the work. I didn't put in enough work. I didn't do so much that God just had to do something. There are, and there were, and there will be in the future other people who could do this job. I know that. I'm completely accepting of that. But here's the reality God asked me to do this. So I did. That's it. At some point in time, God will ask somebody else to do it. There's a good possibility at some point in time, God's going to ask one of you to do a job like this. And it's not because you're so awesome. It's because he is so awesome. He needs something really pathetic to prove that. got nothing to do with me. It's got nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with Peter. Peter's doubt, I believe, was in himself, not Jesus. Somehow God made a mistake. He shouldn't have been there. You know what? Part of that was right. He shouldn't have been there, but he was, and he was there because Jesus asked him to be there. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, 
Why did you doubt? Think it's because he started paying, paying attention to what was around him and he didn't think he had the ability to stay afloat. The truth is he didn't. Neither do you, neither do I. What we do have the ability to do is trust that Jesus can keep us afloat. So when God asks you to do something ridiculous, when God asks you to do something almost borderline stupid in the middle of chaos and all of your friends are going, I wouldn't. I mean, that, you know, Judas might have been like, yeah, Peter, get out of the boat. You know, but it's, 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 you know, it's, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Just because everyone is around you is saying that it's not possible doesn't mean that it's not possible. If Jesus says it's possible, then it's possible. I, I, can't, I can't sing. Okay, Jesus can. I, I can't preach. It's fine. Jesus can. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to minister or share my faith or witness to people. That's okay. Jesus, Jesus does. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm brave enough to go on the mission field. It's okay. Jesus can be your bravery. I don't, I don't, think, I, I, I don't think I'm enough. Relax. You're not. And you never will be. Because if you were enough, you wouldn't need him. And Jesus is never going to call you to something that you're all that's required. He's always going to call you to something bigger than you, that's beyond you, so that you know who made it possible. It's never about us. It's always about him. It has to be. Too often we get derailed in life and relationships and friendships and marriage because we look around and we see the difficulty of the task at hand and we convince ourselves that we are not capable of making this happen and we're right, we're not. But that's where we go wrong. None of these things happen because of our abilities or our worth or our value. <laughs> There's a very, very popular speaker named Todd White. He says, the cross is not the display of God's love, but the display of his value because heaven would go bankrupt to get him back. Every time I hear that, I have to fight off a gag reflex. It has nothing to do with our value. It has everything to do with his love. always about him these things happen because we trust in the ability of Christ if you trust in the ability of Christ to make his, make what he has commanded you to do happen then it will be enough and it will always be enough we just have to learn to trust in him above us amen we pray for it heavenly father I want to thank you for what you're continually doing in this place I want to thank you that you always ask us to move beyond who we are. We are never the capable ones. You are always the capable one. Help us to not make the mistake of believing that somehow it's about what we will achieve, what we will be able to do, what we will provide, anything that has to do with us. Lord, give us the ability to step outside of ourselves and place all of the power, the authority, the, the, the might, the honor, the glory, every piece of whatever it is you're asking us to accomplish. Let us always put it back into the hands where it belongs, yours. Help us to trust you in all of the craziness that you ask us to do. Help us to value these times of silence Help us to pursue these times of silence. Help us to find a place where we understand we don't need to know everything about everything. It's okay to say, I don't know, but I trust Jesus anyway. And help us to step into the impossible willingly 
knowing that you have always had our backs. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. 